0: I'm Helena Gaspard from the Institute of Fiscal Studies and Democracy at the University of Ottawa. Thank you for joining us today at The Recovery Project. The Recovery Project is an international coalition of partners, including Canada 2020, Global Progress and IFSD, and we're marshalling our resources to look ahead and to consider ideas and options on how we can leverage a period of recovery to build stronger economies, institutions and and definitely better policy. We hope you too are keeping healthy and well at home. We hope you're washing your hands and you're following the advice of public health officials. During our live stream conversation today, we invite you to share questions with us via the Zoom Q&A function. And we'll do our best to get to as many as possible. If we can't get to your question, rest assured we're keeping close track and we'll do our best to respond in another way or at another time. We're absolutely delighted to have the Honourable Hugh Siegel with us. Hugh is the Matthews Fellow at the School of Public Policy Studies at Queen's University and he's a senior advisor at erden Burles LLP. Hugh Siegel has been a Senator. He's been the Chief of Staff to former Prime Minister Brian Mulroney. He's helped to manage federal provincial affairs for Premier Davis. He has held a number of other distinguished positions, has written widely on all questions of policy. And it's a real pleasure for us to be able to talk to Hugh today. Welcome, Hugh.
1: Great to be here, Helena.
0: So we're here today to talk about social safety nets. And when we think about the crisis response to the COVID-19 pandemic, we think and we see, you know, frontline staff and we see various orders of government working together and collaborating. And for a number of us, that highlights or that underscores the importance of a well-functioning, a well-funded and certainly a properly coordinated social safety net. And while no response and no system is ever flawless, Canadians, I think, can be proud for now at the very least. But I think we also have a really important opportunity to rethink the stitching of our social safety net. And so, as we're shifting from crisis response to recovery, you know, Hugh, you'll help us unpack today whether there are elements of the social safety net, of that infrastructure that need repair or that are in need of replacement. And one of the basic principles I'd like to return to today really is the role of the state. And Hugh, I'd love for us to hear from you what the role of the state should be in your mind and how a state can best serve its citizens.
1: I think, generally speaking, in a democracy, the role of the state is to be modest in its aspirations, respectful of the right of people to make their own choices in life, and then work with other parts of society to build a framework of uh, economic opportunity and social opportunity for the largest possible amount of people in the country that you're serving, and to ensure that the framework of rule of law and what we would call in Canada peace, order, and good government is uh, sustained in a constructive fashion and in canada we're a mixed market economy where we have a vibrant private sector but we also have an important crown sector crown corporations uh, that do important work as part of our economic mix in canada a peace order and good government has always meant under the order provision that we have a certain respect for equality of opportunity equality of outcome is something which our friends on the far left sometimes like to legislate i don't think it's doable But equality of opportunity is something that we have built in this country, both in terms of universal health insurance, primary and secondary education being free, uh, relatively safe communities, and governments which operate, by and large, in the public interest most of the time. And I think our challenge now is to look at what we're learning from the coronavirus pandemic process and determine what needs to be done to address those areas of weakness which have emerged and where we can make some progress together between governments and between different parts of society.
0: So You mentioned areas of weakness. Where do you see weaknesses emerging, either in, say, the infrastructure of the state or even the infrastructure of the social safety net?
1: Well, on the social safety net, I think it's pretty clear that we have a pretty disparate system where the pieces don't connect as well as they should. I noticed that the other day Minister Qualtro made the case for provinces not to claw back welfare payments from those people who have applied for and received the emergency CERB support which the Government of Canada, to its credit, put together very quickly. That indicates that we're not really integrated in terms of how we support people without income for whatever reason. Whether they're without income because all the stores have closed and there are no jobs or whether they're without income because they have a physical handicap of some sort. And we have two different regimes. And I think there's an illusion in Canada that we spend too much on social policy and social programs. But here's the hard truth. We're actually middle of the pack. Other countries spend substantially more as a percentage of their gross domestic product than we do. And on the issue of the management of poverty, for example, If you look at the Gini coefficient, which defines the level of inequality in our society, we are better than the United States, and we are better than the United Kingdom. But there's a whole bunch of countries, Germany, France, the Netherlands, Denmark, that do substantially better than we do. The Czechs do better than we do. So we have some progress we have to make yet in terms of reducing the level of poverty. As you and I are speaking, and while the government of Canada deserves great credit or the short term measures they brought in and the child benefit, which they brought in, which has reduced the level of poverty. There's still between three and four million Canadians beneath the poverty line uh, in every part of the country. The numbers amongst our First Nations brothers and sisters are third world numbers, horrific. And we know too that people who live beneath the poverty line have more difficult health circumstances, they have less better educational outcomes for their kids, and they're often susceptible to the kind of health challenges we're all working during this pandemic to try to avert for everybody. So we have a way to go. I don't think we should assume that our system is perfect. And I think we have to think about, as we look at other aspects of recovery, what we do to make the social safety net more market-sensitive, more constructive, more supportive of work, and more protecting of individual freedom for the people who are recipients.
0: I find what you're saying so compelling because I think in some ways, You have the ability to bring together different camps when you're talking about the social safety net. On the one hand, you're talking about supporting and helping to raise up, you know, the most vulnerable people in the country. But in the same breath, you know, you're not talking about, say, um, an overly interventionist, you know, style of state welfare system.
1: Here's the problem we have. The provincial welfare systems, despite the significant hard work of the public servants who run all those programs across Canada, are very labor intense in terms of management, and they are tied to a huge thick book of rules, which the caseworkers have to sort out case by case. And by definition, they have to be judgmental about how other people are living their lives, number one. Number two, none of those welfare programs bring anybody closer than half the poverty line in their own province, less than half. And they don't really elevate people out of poverty. They keep people trapped in poverty because the rules of those welfare programs discourage work. They say if you earn a couple of hundred bucks or so more a month because you're trying to, that will get clawed back dollar for dollar, which is a level of taxation that the wealthiest people in Canada do not pay. So there are some real anomalies that we have to fix. And I think there are some things the federal government has done during this particular crisis, which is a pretty good platform from which we can begin some federal-provincial discussions about how to make that better.
0: So certainly gaps and, and challenges in the system that are well heard and that connect both the federal and the provincial government I think it's important now that we talk about, you know, the universal basic income, and you are absolutely an expert in the area. You've been advocating for universal basic income for years, and especially with respect to poverty and to gaps in the current system. I'm hoping you can help us first unpack what it is you mean by universal basic income, what you mean by UBI, because I think sometimes the term or the concept is being used by different interlocutors at this juncture.
1: Helena, you're absolutely right. The notion that was advanced by the candidate for the Democratic Party's presidential nomination, Andrew Yang, which was for a freedom dividend where everybody would get a check for $1,000 every month, and then the tax system would tax back from the wealthier people what they didn't need because their income was high enough to do that. That's not what I'm proposing. I'm proposing what basically an extension of what we already have in Canada. We have the guaranteed income supplement for seniors. And the premise is very simple. If you're 65 years of age or older, and if for some reason you don't have at least $1,200 a month in income, the GIS tops you up to fill the gap. And that is done, by the way, because CRA has your tax data. We all have to file our taxes every year. That gives CRA the information. And as we're seeing in our present circumstance, CRA was much more nimble in responding to the challenge of putting money in the bank accounts of all those folks who lost their jobs through no fault of their own in the millions because of the government-imposed shutdown driven by public health advice. So the notion that you would give everybody a check for $1,000 and then hope the tax system catches it, I think is a little bit optimistic. Uh, wealthier people will often use tax planning advice to avoid paying as much tax as they can. There's nothing wrong with that. It's part of the system. I think it's far better to have a top-up that is driven by the tax system. So you file your tax, your income says you're earning beneath the poverty line, and then the top-up gets you closer to that line so you have more independence and economic freedom. And how you spend the money is up to you. Not driven by caseworkers who tell you what to do or where to go or how to dress, but simply you make your own decisions. And it's the principle of distributing liquidity based on targets of people who need it because their income from whatever source is not sufficient to meet the basic obligations as defined now by the federal government, by the market basket test. And it is less bureaucratic by definition. It keeps the state out of micromanaging people's lives. The state does for people in difficulty, exactly what it does for large corporations and banks, which is generate the liquidity through the central bank, so they can do their job and they can meet their obligations. Well, I'm not against doing that, but the notion that we can do that easily instantaneously for the large financial institutions, but we don't have the ability to do it for people when they're in trouble makes no sense at all. And CRA's performance on the CERB has been very impressive to their credit, the credit of all the public servants who are working very hard to make that happen. And the bottom line is that's the key. And so, Our challenge here is to, when we get into the lessons learned and recovery part after the pandemic, to find a way for the provinces in Ottawa to sit down and they will look at public health and look at other things. What did we do right? What could we have done better? And they will also be looking at income security because the economic crisis produced by the pandemic is a very large part of what's on people's minds and what is disturbing people's lives. And I think that's a great opportunity to look at federal-provincial fiscal relations, the Federal Provincial Fiscal Relations Act, which defines the transfers between provinces and Ottawa, back and forth, and come up with some new solutions which are more integrated and which connect. The notion that you have EI over here, which is a very creaky program, you know, 40% of Canadians who are out of work do not now qualify for EI. That tells you exactly how out-of-date EI is with the reality on the ground, And the issue of efficiency is important. When we have this crisis, the government of Canada, to its credit, realized it had to get money to people quickly. I remember when I taught at Queens some years ago, I would say to my graduate students, you better file your taxes. And they would say, well, why? We don't have any money. And I'd say, because under the HST, low income tax credit, if your income is less than 30,000 a year, CRA will put money in your bank account. That's how that was set up by Mr. Maroney and Mr. Wilson. So we have some hints and the issue is to have the will to sit down and try to make it happen.
0: And I think that'll definitely be something that we should pick up on after the conversation on UBI and what you know these negotiations might actually look like, how you know these changes can happen. So in your mind, UBI is a tool, is a policy tool. And to you, we would want to make sure incomes are at least at the poverty line. So if you're not even at the poverty line, the purpose of the UBI would be to raise your income
1: Certainly to lift it beyond 50% of the poverty line, which is where we are now, I would like to see a system, quite frankly, where you got to 75 or 80% of the poverty line and had no disincentives to work. Welfare programs now discourage you from working. The pilot project that Ontario tried to advance suggested that we would take people to 75% of the poverty line, encourage them to work, and when they did work and make income, they'd only pay 50% on what they earn. They get to keep 50 percent, which is more than the welfare system let them have. And when they earned as much as their basic grant, which was going to be about $1,300 a month back then, they pay the same level of taxation on their total income as all of us do. So that was a plan that would have encouraged work. And in fact, some of the analysis of how that pilot worked in the Hamilton area indicated that that's exactly what happened. People used the top-up for the purpose of getting some help so they could go to work or getting better education to improve their jobs. They were doing exactly what one would have hoped people did with that small element of economic stability.
0: I mean, so definitely one of the lessons from the Ontario pilot, as you point out, was that incentive to work. Can you talk to us about, you know, pilots in other countries? Have there been attempts elsewhere to introduce a universal basic income? And what have the results been?
1: There have been a range of pilots in places like the Netherlands and Glasgow, There have been pilots in Stockton, California, and in Barcelona. Most of them have been of the universal Democrat kind. Namely, everybody gets his check for a certain amount of money every month, and it's not the kind of top-up tied to the tax system. And the results in places like Stockton and the Netherlands have actually been pretty encouraging, all things considered. And I think what's important now is that, I noticed that the Prime Minister of Spain has announced that they will be absolutely going to a basic income at the end of this pandemic because they've seen what the need for liquidity is. Scotland's first minister, Sturgeon, has indicated that it's her intention to initiate a basic income for Scots under their provincial jurisdiction. I think we're beginning to see this move actually quite constructively. In the last elections in India, The largest political party in the world, the Congress Party, they weren't successful, but part of their platform was a basic income to deal with the issue of poverty in their own country. So I think it is moving in the right direction, and I'm hopeful that uh, we'll have an open mind here in Canada.
0: Just to tie up a few ends on the conversation on UBI here, how would you make the case to finance this program? Because I think it's clear that there are demonstrated social benefits, that there are demonstrated individual benefits when it comes to the program itself and its results. But how would you make the case for that initial payout up front?
1: Let's just look at quantum for a moment. The uh, parliamentary budget officer, an organization for which I have great respect, was asked by Pierre Paulyev, who was the uh, conservative finance critic at the time, and I think he still is, what would it cost if we took the Ontario pilot and made that national policy right across Canada? And the number that the BPO came back was the gross cost would be something like $60 billion a year. If, however, we uh, did away with the federal programs, the mishmash of programs, it would obviate, that would bring it down to $40 billion a year, not counting what the provinces would save, because obviously if you were receiving that top-up, you would no longer be eligible for welfare payments in the provinces because your income would be too high. And in Ontario alone, we spend close to eleven billion dollars a year on support for the disabled and support for low-income people those programs would be obviated by the federal program so we're probably looking at a net cost of about 20 billion dollars a year and we can put that in perspective when we look at some of the numbers that have been tossed around during this crisis that we're going through now in canada and that 20 billion dollars does not count what you would save in other existing areas of expenditure when the pathologies of poverty are diminished. We know that the health care system deals with many, many people on a percentage basis who come from a low-income background, and uh, more so than from other parts of the economic sphere, and that has a cost. We know that low-income families have more difficulties with substance abuse. I remember when we had members of the various police forces in Vancouver and Montreal and Toronto appear before our Senate committee on urban poverty and we asked them how did poverty reflect itself in their day-to-day work and they said well we're not actually busy on many calls to westmount or rockcliffe or many calls to point gray or rosedale we're busy in the other parts of town because that's where the problems tend to be driven by the difficulties associated with poverty so there are other savings which we would be making as a society and it would make our society in my judgment more productive It would increase the connection between low-income people and the workplace because they'd be encouraged to work. And that, of course, would help grow the economy, something we're going to want to do to manage those deficits, which will be inherited from this particular crisis unavoidably.
0: Mr. Siegel, you're doing a great job here. We're seeing questions actually from the audience pop up here on my screen and you're actually speaking to some of them, you know, the questions of what would be you know, the benefits or the efficiencies, economic or otherwise, of actually introducing a UBI, and you're talking about you know, the downstream effects, you know alleviating a lot of downstream social challenges and certainly the societal and fiscal costs related to them. There are questions now popping up too, about that relationship between the federal government and provinces. And I think there's an important question that we should be asking collectively, you know, just about uh, the state of the economy and and certainly our fiscal space to make these kinds of policy changes. We all know too well, you know, the IMF forecast came out earlier this week. Things are going to contract fairly substantively, just over 6% in the case of Canada, looking at the year ahead. So where do we find ourselves in that federal-provincial mix where, the federal government will have the most fiscal space to act but as you've pointed out provinces have accountability and for implementation across a host of these social programs how do you see that relationship playing out where one's holding say the resources and the other is accountable for the operationalization on the ground
1: let's be clear that as we have seen throughout federal provincial negotiations in a host of areas we have found a way to achieve a workable balance between provincial jurisdiction and federal spending power. There is uh, no reason in the world to believe that the first ministers, territorial leaders, and the prime minister could not sit down and say, okay, some of the provinces are in fiscal difficulty now, simply because the collapse of the local economy, the absence of revenue, the difficulties with the energy markets in the West are having a deleterious effect on their capacity to meet their financial obligations. And they're looking to Ottawa for support, which makes perfect sense. Ottawa has done that sort of thing in the past. And there's no reason in the world that we can't do that again. That is a great context within which to have the discussion. Well, what can we rationalize in the various services that we now provide to make them more efficient? Let's be clear. The Guaranteed Income Supplement, that is now a national program, began in the mid-70s as an Ontario program, which was put together during the minority government period of Mr. Davis, 1975. And it was called the Guaranteed Annual Income Supplement, Gains. And it was brought in to make sure that the 35% of seniors back then, who were mostly women, who were living in poverty, did not live in poverty anymore. And that top-up reduced that level of poverty from 35% to under 5% in three years. Then that program had a bit of a contagion effect across Canada. And then the federal government brought in the guaranteeing income supplement. So the notion of things moving around to be done more efficiently and effectively through respectful negotiation makes good sense. And of course, when you do that, then the transfer payments back and forth between Ottawa and the provinces can be adjusted accordingly to address some of those issues. There will be a substantial discussion about reforming equalization. Various provinces want to see that happen. That means that there'll be a discussion about the Federal Provincial Fiscal Relations Act and the formulaic relationship. That's a perfect place to have this discussion about those transfers related to social policy. Provinces run the healthcare system now, but they get transfers from Ottawa to help in that process. Provinces always say it's not enough and that's part of the back and forth between two levels of government. So the notion that we would have a constructive discussion about making something better, making it more efficient, making it more productive for the economy strikes me as something that is intrinsic to the kind of recovery that we're going to have to all work together to help achieve.
0: Absolutely. And so definitely leveraging and thinking about the provinces as laboratories, as, you know, potential sources of great ideas and definitely collaborators
1: as, as, as equal partners. I don't for one moment, believe that the commitment of any of the premiers to social justice and economic opportunity in their own jurisdiction is any less than the commitment of the federal government. They look at it in different ways because they have different telescopes, so to speak, based on their perspective, but they're all trying to do the right thing. We're
0: getting a few questions here about how you actually turn a crisis into an opportunity. So thinking about the current state right now, we have, as you point out, an opportunity, and opening for these negotiations, for these changes. But what are the necessary ingredients for you know changes to the social safety net, be it UBI or something else? What are the roles that you see for politicians, for public servants, for civil society, for media? How do we put those pieces of the puzzle together? What would be the most effective mix in your mind?
1: The good thing about our democratic way of life in Canada is that politics is always a debate about the agenda. Various different parts of society have a view about what their priorities are. The business community will have its view. Labour leaders will have their view. Our First Nations brothers and sisters will have their view. And that debate about what the agenda should be is a constructive part of an open democracy and it's valuable. That being said, I think inviting first ministers together and territorial leaders take a good hard look at what our future priorities should be is a good start. I remember after the 1984 election, the prime minister convoked an economic summit where all the participants were there, provinces were there. Industry was there, trade unions, the volunteer sector were there, and they spent a series of meetings discussing what the priorities should be from which then government tried to act as effectively as it could. And the notion that we would make that part of the process, I think would be a very, very constructive way forward because the thing about going through the pandemic, everybody is doing their part in one way or another. Some are on the front line, some are self-isolating, Some are the folks who are working every day to keep the basic parts of the economy running, such as food and transportation and the rest. But we're all going to have a stake in the outcome. And the government, I think, would be well advised, all the governments, to think about how all of society is at least invited to participate in that process. And then governments have to start making some decisions. This is not rocket science. Mike Pearson did this, to his credit, in a minority government on health care. Healthcare started in Saskatchewan, and then it was produced as a national proposition by Mr. Pearson negotiating with the provinces. We've done this in the past, and we can do it again.
0: So definitely a need to set a national agenda to start to build some consensus and to make sure that a representative group of society is at the table, that includes the premiers, that includes our territorial leaders, that includes different groups, certainly civil society, among many others. A lot of thinking that has to go on ahead of this. Hugh, maybe to help us start to wrap up, You talked about UBI. You mentioned some of the existing gaps in the safety net that need to be addressed. And so if you were to make a lasting change to the safety net, what would it be? And it can't be UBI
1: only. (laughs) No, no, no. Well, here's what I would do. I would take the principles that now exist for the child benefit. And I would take the principles that now exist for the GIS, guaranteed income supplement for seniors, and ask ourselves, what is the rational way to extend those principles operationally to that part of the population between 18 years of age and 64 years of age who really don't have access to a meaningful safety net at all when they're thrown into unemployment or income collapse through no fault of their own. And how you do that and over what period of time is what negotiation should be about. But that would be the one significant step that would say A, we really do take equality of opportunity seriously in this country, and B, we don't just want recovery for one aspect of the economy, we want recovery for all parts of the economy, and I think that would be the most salient step forward.
0: Well, Hugh, thank you very much for a very insightful conversation and certainly some very important parting words, I think, on what thinking about recovery needs to look like. and on the different pieces that have to come together politically, fiscally, economically to make sure that recovery is definitely a benefit for all. Just so all of our listeners know, the recording of this conversation will be available at the recoveryproject.org. And we do hope that you'll continue to join us at The Recovery Project for more live stream discussions, more podcasts, and certainly more analysis. On behalf of all of us at The Recovery Project, our partners, Canada 2020, Global Progress, and certainly the Institute of Fiscal Studies and Democracy, we thank you. And Hugh, we thank you very much again for spending the morning with us. Stay safe.
1: Thank you.